Warning, the content of the show is left-leaning and offers radical ideas, plus challenging the status quo. Accordingly, we ask you to remain calm and have an open mind. If not, there are other podcast shows that can speak to your conformity. Welcome to Firebrand. I'm your host, AJ. If you're following us, you're following us on Facebook, which is at facebook.com forward slash Firebrand. You're also probably following us on the Spotify as well as SoundCloud. And you will always hear every Tuesday um, each episode of our great guests. And today's one of our great guests. In fact, our guest is going to be is running for president um, for the Green Party. Um, it's Howie Hawkins. Um, First time we're having a presidential candidate on the show this year, so hopefully we're going to have more candidates, and we're happy to have Howie. Uh, Howie, thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Um, So I'm just going to be a fan for a bit. Um, So I started getting the Green Party, like, early, well, I guess early 2000s, so, like, 07, 08, and so when I came into the party, you know, I started recognizing a lot of names that I've heard before. Um, prior to that, I voted for Ralph Nader. So I got to know the Green Party that way. But I actually got involved in the Green Party. I started hearing all these activists and organizers and political figures that are in the Green Party. And Howie's one of them. And in, in learning about Howie being the activist when it comes to anti-war, pro worker movements, um, all the great things that Howie has done in various movements, whether it's New York where he's from or anywhere in the United States, is kind of like my introduction to Howie as well as running for offices and everything. So that's why I'm a little bit of a fan right now that I get to have Howie on the show, but I really want to get to these issues. And so before we get to that, I just want to know why at this moment in time, Howie, that you decided to run for president under the Green Party? Well, I got asked by a lot of Greens around the country. Um, I was the Green candidate for governor in 2018 in New York, and very difficult campaign. A lot of people that had supported me in the past felt they had to vote for Cuomo, the Democrat, because Trump was president, which didn't make any sense because Trump wasn't on the ballot. Right. But that was just the mentality. Um, and now being a retired Teamster, I was able to go at it 24-7. I never put so much time into a campaign, but we got a lower vote than we got two years earlier. We got 5% two years earlier, which moved Cuomo to adopt some of our demands because he wanted to compete for our votes. So we got a ban on fracking. We got $15 minimum wage. We got paid family leave. Um, so to decompress after that campaign and also to make up for a cut in my pension, thanks to a change at federal law that allowed our multi-employer pension funds to be cut uh, so we don't get our full earned benefits. That was protected by the ERISA law, Employment Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. So, you know, my pension was cut 20%. So the post office had a uh, temporary job, 18 bucks an hour plus overtime. I was working 12 hours, just seven days a week. So I just disappeared into the post office for two months, you know, a week after the election until early January. And in the meantime, a bunch of people around the country said, we're going to do a Jeff Howie movement. And they put together a campaign and it was people 
I had enormous respect for, like the late Bruce Dixon, mm-hmm. who was a friend, and we'd worked together on uh, the rationale for independent politics and a mass-based membership party. Uh, that's in Atlanta, all the way across the country, to Matt Gonzalez, who was the almost mayor of California, of San Francisco. Yeah. Almost beat Gavin Newsom, who's now the governor of New York. So uh, I had to look at it seriously. It still took me a few months to say, okay, let's do an exploratory committee. And a couple more months before I announced, that was May 28th. So basically, I was drafted. And I accepted because I respect these people. And I looked around, and I didn't see anybody running who was capable of running a serious national campaign. You know, I've run four campaigns statewide in New York. I know what a large campaign needs, what you have to do. And uh, the Green Party is too important to just let it flounder in this election. So I agreed to do it. And now that I'm into it, I'm, I'm you know, working 24-7. <laughs> Although everything changed with the coronavirus, you know, instead of being out on the road, I'm now going back to the 19th century when they had front porch campaigns. Right. Except instead of the newspaper men coming to me, which they weren't doing anyway, because yeah. we're the third party, uh, we're going out on social media like this. Yeah. So we'll talk about coronavirus here in a second, but there is a, a new change in the game. And you just highlighted that, which is for people who may not know, you know, anyone who's running for any political race, you know, whether it's for governor, for president, whatever, there's this thing called petitioning, which means you need to get X amount of signatures to get on the ballot. Now, for third parties, for people may not know, it's probably really, really hard anywhere in the United States to get any third party, whether it's green or libertarian or a socialist candidate on these ballots. And and we'll do a whole different show about election law because I won't get into the nuances of that. But the one thing I want to talk with you, Howie, is because of the crisis that we're in now, there's a little bit of that change in the game when it comes to petitioning. Now we're being asked not to see people door to door to get those signatures or go in those public square, public common area events to get signatures. What is the campaign doing in terms of gathering signatures state to state? Well, we pulled together a team of lawyers and ballot access activists, and we are going to the governments of the states where the Green Party is not on the ballot yet for this election. We're on 21 states. We have 30 more to go. There's counting the District of Columbia, which we do at a ballot line in. So we got 30 states. And what we're doing is uh, sending letters to the governor, the secretary of state, and the legislative leaders saying, we need relief. And our basic argument is in most of these states, we've been on the ballot for several presidential election cycles. So in the interest of fairness and full democracy, you should just put us on the ballot because we can't go out and physically get the signatures, which is a big job. I mean, we need about a million and a half signatures to have enough to get past the scrutiny of all these states. And the numbers vary. 275 in Tennessee is easy, but Illinois, Mm -hmm. where are you? 15,000? And you have two months to get them? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe 30,000. It's a lot. And uh, so, and then you need about double that to be sure if, uh, you know, Democrats challenge the petition, which they often do. So uh, now, if uh, they don't just put us on, there are two options we can offer. One is a filing fee, 
which some states have anyway, or do an electronic petition, which the state of New Jersey did for their primary petitioning uh, leading up to their uh, state and congressional primaries this year. So there are different remedies. And so our plan is to ask for relief. And if we don't get it promptly, to take them to court. And then I take it that if anyone wants to get more information, they just go to your website or to a uh, Green Party State Party's website to find out more information about that? Yeah, we're compiling the information. Uh, if you click on the ballot uh, access uh, tab or link on my website, which is howiehawkins.us, uh, you'll have the latest information we have on each of the states. And, uh, you know, there are various states are developing this, this plan. So, um, and go to your state uh, party websites. And if they don't have a plan yet, you know, push them to get one as we are. So right. we want to be on all 51 ballots. That's right. That would be first for the Green Party. Jill Stein did the best we'd ever done in 2016. That was 45 on the ballot and three we were write-ins and three we were nothing. We want to be on every ballot. That's good. So let's talk about the, the coronavirus for a moment. Um, you don't see it behind me, but on, I get on YouTube, there's like this big screen I have with worldwide numbers and break it down to every country of cases and deaths and recoveries and everything. And, you know, we're number one as always on things. Um, so we're kind of leading with this virus, but we're looking at other countries like Spain and Ireland and others. And I'm choosing those because what's been interesting with this is that within the last couple of weeks, Spain nationalized their private hospitals um, and they're fourth in the world when it comes to cases. Ireland, I think just a couple of days ago, nationalized their healthcare saying this is a common benefit for all. That's what Common Dreams reported of Ireland is saying. Um, what is your response, Howie, that is this the right move for countries to nationalize hospital, the private hospitals, and providing that kind of health care for people in a crisis like this? Well, in the immediate crisis, I think our demand should be Medicare should pay for the tests and the treatment. There's talk of the federal government covering the tests. It might be in this relief package that may have just passed. It's about, they're about to vote on it in the House today. Uh, the Senate already passed it, uh, but nothing about the treatment. And treatments, you know, I've been reading twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to pay for that treatment. And with over eighty million people not having insurance or having such crappy insurance, they don't want to use it because the deductibles and copays are so high. Um, we need to make sure people are going to get treatment when they need it, uh, instead of spreading the disease further. So I think Medicare system should just pay for that. I think that's the immediate relief we need now. Now I have a whole healthcare plan where we would immediately have national health insurance, Medicare for all, which would be the single public payer that would cover all medically necessary services for everybody. And then over 10 years, build out a fully socialized system, a national health service where the hospitals, the clinics are publicly owned and the doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers are uh, public servants, and it would be governed by a federation of locally elected boards. So we would make sure the healthcare resources are distributed fairly through our communities. 
that the services we want are covered and that the costs are controlled because instead of what we have now where they maximize their income as providers by running people through tests they don't need and that's partly because of the insurance issue but also they get more more fees and more treatments and more tests and that just is the public hospital not the public the private hospitals even if they're nonprofit, they're trying to maximize their income and the drug companies feeding at the public trough that's what we get if we just have national health insurance so we do need a national health service i'm not i don't want to do that under trump i would not want him to nationalize anything this guy is a total incompetent <laughs> america first my ass he knew about this back in january yeah. you know people are dying because of this man and i would not want him anywhere near our healthcare system you know running it so I think, you know, but we can demand Medicare. There's a bureaucracy there. They can pay for those uh, fees, for those services, and they should. So um, in the long run, healthcare should be a public service, a public good, a human right, not a buy or die commodity. So I think that's where we want to move, but not under Trump. So some people would say that in order to combat uh, a crisis like this, it's more about speed than anything else. So the more you're quickly to get to the solution, the better we can now, as people are now saying, flatten the curve versus getting on that curve and everything. How would you respond to, you know, how can we do something like that while we're learning minute to minute about a virus like this? So, you know, how can we reach the, the speed, the speed rate of, a crisis. Well, right now the immediate need is test kits, so we know who's got it, so we can isolate, quarantine them, trace their contracts, and quarantine those people, so we we can slow the spread much better that way than what we're doing now, which is just uh, in some states locking down, and other states we're not. Uh, so we need to produce test kits. We need ventilators. We're running out of ventilators. They're about to decide. Uh, in fact, in Spain, I just read they've decided anybody over 65, uh, you're not getting a ventilator. We're going to give it to the younger people that need it to survive. Um, and we're about to hit that. We've got people. We have Elmer's Hospital, a public hospital down in New York City, um, where uh, they're putting trash bags on because they don't have enough uh, protective uh, gear. Um, they don't have masks. Uh, they don't have respirators. They don't have the, the shield so the virus doesn't get in their eyes when it's in the air. Um, so our healthcare providers are in trouble. I, I heard last night that, and they were just still counting, 160 healthcare workers in one Boston hospital have been found infected with coronavirus. I mean, that devastates their ability to provide care. I mean, it's such a crisis. So there's a Defense Production Act, which Trump can use, he has signed, but is not using. And that can be used like we did during World War II when the federal government set up the Office of War Mobilization and either took over or built a quarter of the manufacturing capacity in the country to build what they called the arsenal of democracy. And that armed the U.S., the U.K., Russia to defeat the Nazis. And we need to do that kind of thing right now. Right now, Trump is just jawboning, you know, some of these manufacturers, car companies and so forth. It's got to move at a faster pace because we're going to be too late. Um, so I think that's an area where, unfortunately, Trump would probably appoint the boards. I mean, that's a 
that's a big problem we got right now. But that's what we need to do to get this equipment so people are able to fight the virus when they come into the healthcare system in our hospitals. So, but so I you, think that's, that's an, another immediate thing we need to do. But don't you feel also that because of the way our system is built and by that capitalism uh, has kind of quelled the kind of production that we're doing because sure there are acts like what you just mentioned, but there is not enough, there's not enough means in order to make the kind of things that need to be happening. So do you think because of capitalism is more of a problem than the actual situation itself? Well, these manufacturers aren't going to do it unless they can make money. Um, so the government's going to have to pay them a fair price. Uh, the $150 billion is in this uh, relief package is a start. I, you know, I haven't priced it out. I don't know if it's enough. I haven't seen a breakdown. But, you know, this is an emergency, and we need to, you know, get, a, get those, that equipment made and deployed, and we got to pay for it. So I, I think that's the immediate thing. The other thing is, you know, the military – uh, they can get things done. They just built a hospital down the Army Corps Engineer and the National Guard in New York in the Javits Center in New York in a week. Um, that's the kind of thing they do. They have, you know, they have a good command structure and people are trained in the leadership positions as they go up. And we can deploy them to get a lot of things done, particularly now providing hospital beds. And that's something that uh, basically states have been doing with their National Guards and calling on the Army Corps of Engineers. Trump has been reluctant to do that. And I have to say, Biden seems to be hiding out in an undisclosed location. You know, I don't know what he's doing. But, you know, he's not providing, he's got a platform, he's got a megaphone, and we're not hearing enough from him. And that's a shame. And to me, that's why, you know, both the major parties can't solve, I mean, basic problems like we're facing right now, let alone, you know, the serious problems like the climate, the new nuclear arms race, and the inequality crisis, which has been uh, increasing the mortality rate of working class people. Our life expectancies have declined uh, now for three out of the last four years. There's a 20-year life expectancy gap between our richest and poorest counties. So economic inequality has become a life or death issue for many of us as well. And they can't, they're not solving those problems. And here we have real clear steps about what we need to do in terms of the testing and the personal protective gear, and the ventilators, and the hospital beds. It's not rocket science, but they're moving slow, and uh, they're too late. Like in Elmer's Hospital, I'm hearing reports from New Orleans and Detroit. Um, there's a study of uh, temperatures. There are these temperatures, and they're somehow hooked to the internet, and they can see where people are getting temperatures. Florida's the hot spot, and there are a lot of older people there. I mean, I think Florida may be the next... Uh, disaster we're facing. I mean, this is this is such a shame and it's so unnecessary because the healthcare system is profit-driven. We've had a decline in the number of hospital beds in this country over the last four decades. I know here in New York, we went from 73,000 to 53,000 beds available uh, since 2000. Uh, since the current governor, a Democrat, Andrew Cuomo, took office, we've closed 18 hospitals in the state including 12 in New York City. And a for-profit system doesn't look at capacity they might need in an emergency. They look at how can we make money now. And so for them, what they call efficiency meant reducing the number of hospital beds and hospitals. 
And that's not the way to run healthcare, which, as I said, should be a public good and a human right. So we need to go to a nonprofit system that operates at cost for human need, not for profit. And uh, because we've had a profit-driven system, we're behind the eight ball now. So looking over your um, healthcare plan, um, as it states, your plan is kind of similar to the Josephine Butler United States Healthcare Act, which for those who may not know, that came out of the 110th Congress in 07, which was introduced by Representative Barbara Lee, if I recall. And Dennis Kucinich was one of the sponsors of that legislation as well. And in that act talks about, you know, basic health rights, having the right to pay leave up to 52 weeks, um, a national health board and expansive birthing options, uh, provide health schools that are tuition free, able to form a union, establish a national budget and everything. Um, is that the very thing that you're wanting to have um, in, a, in a healthcare system, Howie, or are there some modifications when it comes to the Josephine Butler Act? No, that's the model I'm working on. And it actually goes back to Ron Dellums, 1977. And Barbara Lee, when Dellums left Congress, she took his seat in that district in Berkeley and Oakland. And she carried it. Until 2013, after Obamacare passed, and she dropped it, which I think is a shame. Um, because now the only alternative is national health insurance, not a national health service. Back in the 70s, when Dellums introduced that bill, we had three options. We had the Nixon plan, the Republican plan, which is basically what we have now with Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, where it's private insurance with public subsidies and some mandates on employers and individuals. And then the national health insurance model was the Kennedy bill, Ted Kennedy. And then there was a third bill, and that was the National Health Service. And that debate kind of turned into two options in the 90s, because a lot of healthcare activists deferring to doctors that didn't want to work on salary, but want to maximize their income, they thought they could get the national health insurance. So a lot of the people settled for that. And I always felt that was the wrong move, because back in the 70s, there was a famous article written by Oliver Fine, Oliver Fine who is a doctor and John Ehrenreich called the Great Leap Sideways. And it was a critique of national health insurance because it said, as I mentioned earlier, that the drug companies and the uh, income maximizing hospitals would feed it to public trough and we'd have a problem with cost control. And plus the thing that the Dellums bill that neither of the other two bills had, and this is the Josephine Butler United States Health Service Act, is we have locally elected health boards. It's two thirds of the board is elected by the general public, one third by the healthcare workers. And so you have democratic accountability. You know, now if Medicare, for example, doesn't cover all services, I'm on it now, and I want them to cover something, um, I have a foot problem that was covered by the Teamsters insurance I had, and then they dropped it. And apparently, I understand Medicare once covered it, and they don't anymore. Well, who do I go to to change that? It's a very centralized bureaucracy. Whereas if we had local health boards, I could go to the local board in a public hearing and say, look, this is why this service should be covered. So um, I just think it's a much better system. We're gonna have public uh, healthcare 
it should be democratic, not just a top-down bureaucracy where, you know, the professional elites will run it in their interest, not everybody's interest. So anyone who might hear that at the first hearing of that may might be thinking automatically, okay, you're saying it's going to be less bureaucracy, but sure, I can go to a local health board, but that local health board may have to go higher up for something else. So even though it might eliminate some bureaucracy, but wouldn't this also create, or if not reinstate more bureaucracy in that kind of system? Well, it's a democracy, not a bureaucracy, where the bureaucrats make decisions, where the people make decisions. So first they elect their local reps. And then the local boards federate at the state level and elect a state board. And then the state boards federate at the national level and elect a national board. So it's like going to your member of Congress. You know, they're one of 435 members of the House. But that's where you start. And if it's an issue, you know, you organize campaigns, you get other members of Congress. It's, it's a political process. But the point is, at least we have a voice and a vote. In Medicare, we don't have anything. No, as for sure. For sure. And, and I think it's the same kind of argument like I heard when I was with the National Alliance Against Racist Political Repression in Chicago, when we were fighting for a community control police authority, you know, because um, in Chicago, there's an independent review board that is only appointed by the mayor. And it's mostly former officers, police officers, as well as members of the fraternal or the police and everything. So when we were advocating for that, we heard criticisms like, why would, quote unquote, ordinary citizens make decisions about something like that? What would you say for someone like that who may say to you, you know, that's great and all, but why does my neighbor get to dictate on what kind of health services I get or do not get? Well, it's a collective decision because it's inherently collective. If we're going to decide what services are covered, all of us have an interest in that. It's just like the police. Um, it's, it's not, you said that uh, people objected to the board yeah. that was elected, the commission that was elected. Uh, and I don't see why they would, because the police are there to serve and protect us. They work for us. So why would we hand their supervision over to somebody else or to them themselves, which is what we have now? Because most of uh, police brutality cases, misconduct cases are internal affairs. And these review boards basically just comment on that and at best give them recommendations. That's not democratic control. And since they work for us, we're the boss. Mm -hmm. So we should have a commission that we elect. Now, you know, as an individual, we're not gonna be steeped in the details of a particular case, but that's what we elect the commission to do. So I don't have a problem with that. I'd rather take my chances with democracy than autocracy. For sure. Um, the other thing when it comes to, you know, you mentioned about getting tests out faster to test for the coronavirus and everything. Uh, one of the things that people <clears throat> are talking about is the correctional system. And we, we have inmates who have been tested positive. Um, as of last night, I've heard in Madison, there's at least eight in the Madison jail who have confirmed cases of the coronavirus. 
And what would you say about those who are incarcerated? You know, should they be let go and get them the adequate health care they need? Um, should healthcare practitioners go into correctional facilities, test them, test the staff, or also have to like work with inmates and everything? Um, what are your thoughts on that? A lot of those people should be released in the interest of public health. Um, you have elderly uh, people in the prisons who oppose no uh, public safety threat. Let's get them out. They're also the most at risk. You have people in there mostly for marijuana offenses. Mm. They're not a threat to public safety. Get them out. Uh, there are people who are awaiting trial because they could not afford bail. Get them out. Um, and I think you can reduce the population to those that actually are a threat to public safety. I heard an interview last night with uh, District Attorney Krasner in Philadelphia, and he's in the process of doing that. But we're late. Another figure I heard in the course of that interview was that in New York City, the uh, infection rate among the people imprisoned in New York City or in the jails there is seven times the rate of New York City, which is a high rate. Wow. and 87 times the rate of the United States. It's too late there. I mean, now we got to get health care to these people and get them to situations where they can be treated properly. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've got a problem not just with the uh, jailed and imprisoned population. We have all these people who are refugees seeking asylum on our southern border just across from Mexico in our own internment camps. And that's another disaster waiting to happen. And I would say, let those people go. You know, you've got them, you've got their records. And when, you know, we can do their hearings to see if they should get asylum or be under, let into the country, do that in, in, in due course. But get them out of a situation where the pandemic could just, you know, race through those uh, refugee camps and internment camps. That is a humanitarian disaster waiting to happen. And it's just cruel to keep them locked up. But do you also feel that when it comes to the livelihoods of everyone else, that there should be a moratorium on like rents, um, utility bills, other personal overhead expenses that people have to face every day? Um, do you think something that needs to be in place or should there be a different plan for that? The plan should be for the federal government to give people the income so they can pay their regular bills. Um, rather than having private businesses take the hit and go out of business. And then we're in real trouble. And you have the domino of, you know, suppose tenants can't pay a landlord, the landlord can't pay the bank. So the landlord goes out of business, the bank goes out of business, uh, and the tenants may be in their home, but they're not getting serviced by a property manager. That's just, uh, I don't think the best way to do it. And the problem with this relief package that's, you know, about to pass or maybe just passed, is that it's not enough. Right. Um, the unemployment insurance expanded to cover more people and pay a little more, um, but it's still not going to cover a lot of people who weren't employed long enough to qualify. So you got to change that. Um, and the bailout for big business does not require them to keep their payrolls. They're sort of urged to. Small businesses required to. So there's 500 billion 
is I would call for big business, mm -hmm. and they're pretty free to do what they want. And the Trump administration kind of decides who gets that, which you know, was a big red flag for me. And then the small business uh, part of the program, I think it was $435 billion, and it's loans, but if they keep their payroll, the loans are forgiven. That's the kind of thing we need to do. Denmark did that. They just It was like social insurance for workers and businesses. It just frees the economy and pay the businesses to pay their workers and pay their uh, overhead expenses, rent, utilities, debt service, the things that they got to pay every month even if they're not in business. I think that's a better way to preserve the economy so then when we can go out and work again, it's ready to go. So you talk about, you know, getting money to others. And one of the things that in your campaign you talked about is – a guaranteed income tax. It's also known as a negative income tax. And I find, and I find this very interesting um, when I first heard about this. Um, in fact, I had talked to a very, very close friend of mine <clears throat> um, saying, what's this about? <laughs> um, my understanding of it, negative income tax, the guaranteed income tax came out of Milton Freeman's playbook uh, that this is more of a market replacement type of program uh the thing that's kind of closest that would that what we have now is an earned income tax credit and yeah can you talk a little bit more about you know your views on this um and why this should be a kind of tax program we need to be implementing the idea is to guarantee a minimum income above poverty and Friedman came up with the idea of a negative income tax to provide some support as a substitute for, at that time, it was AFDC, uh, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. Uh, and he said, just give people cash uh, through the tax system, which I think is a good, efficient approach. The problem was he didn't want to give enough money to get them above poverty. Mm -hmm. But the civil rights movement picked up that idea with the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963, the Freedom Budget. They sent to Congress in 1966 and the Poor People's Campaign that Martin Luther King was organizing in 1968. And, you know, people talk about uh, how difficult it is to end poverty. It's not that difficult. Poor people are poor because they don't have enough money. And if everybody was guaranteed an income above poverty, they wouldn't all be poor anymore. Most of the poor people in this country work very hard. The problem is they aren't paid enough or they can't get enough hours. So just make sure everybody gets enough income. So people fill out their tax forms. If they're below the poverty line, the government sends them a check on a regular basis until their circumstances change and they're able to earn more than the poverty line and, and pay their fair share of taxes. So I just see that as a much, and it's also much more efficient. The other idea that some people say is like, you know, Andrew Yang was saying a thousand dollars for everybody every month. Um, why should Donald Trump and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and uh, Jeff Bezos get that? They don't need it. And so it's an expense we don't need. Um, whereas the people that need it get it through this negative income tax. So it's less costly to the public treasury and it gets to those who need it. So I think it's a, a better program than a universal basic income, which is a grant that everybody gets, whether they're rich or poor. No, I, no, I agree with that. Um, I think that is a lot better than uh, universal basic income because my argument for UBI is that 
for for Yang's perspective, you know, a thousand dollars for everyone. Well, a thousand dollars in Oakland, California, is different than in Ladd, Illinois. You know, because a thousand dollars could be a make or break difference depending where you live. You know, when it comes to an actual living wage. You know, um, but with negative income tax, the poverty line even for a single individual adult. All right. But what what threshold would you have for negative income tax? Because if I understood Freeman correctly, that there needs to be a, a certain threshold, he says about $40,000 or less. And then that will, and we do the math. So if someone makes 21000 a year, the difference of the 40000 would be 19000 You take 50% of that, that person will receive $905,000, which is good for some. But I feel there's nothing else qualifying for that, let alone having a floor number. Or am I incorrect in that? Well, I, the forty thousand in today's dollars is a lot different than in Milton sure. Freeman's days. For sure. I mean, back then that would have put you in the top ten percent, five percent, or one percent probably uh, back in the early '60s. So, um, but the principle is you you have a poverty line. Now, the poverty line we're using is out of date. It's based on a uh, bare subsistence food budget in the late 50s that you're supposed to be able to live on for a few months. And it just multiplied that by three because back then uh, food was about a third of an average household budget. It's very different today. Uh, housing and health care uh, have skyrocketed. Wages have stagnated. Food is a smaller portion of the budget. So the poverty line we've got is really below what people need to pay for the necessities. So we need to revise what that poverty line is. And, you know, economists argue over that a lot, say around 150% of what it is now. But that would be your threshold. And of course, it varies whether you're an individual, a couple, a couple with one child, two child, three children, and so forth. So uh, you have these different scales, just like you do when you fill out your taxes for the earned income tax credit. And uh, so the, the point is, if you're below, the government sends you a biweekly or monthly check to bring you above the poverty line for that period um, until you're making more. And then, you know, you're, you're on the progressive tax scale, which, by the way, needs to be a lot more progressive. I mean, now there's just a few brackets and you start paying I think the bottom bracket now is 10%. You pay down on your first dollar. That's a pretty big tax. That's uh, almost as big as the payroll taxes, which everybody pays, at least if they're working over the table. So um, there's a lot we need to do with the tax system, make it more progressive and fair. So who would oversee this kind of money being divided out among community residents? Is this more on the human service department end of it or the Department of Treasury? Because like the one thing I will agree on is the welfare system that we have today is almost more of a police state. In other words, that social service, human service is not what it was meant when like Jane Adams and others who kind of pioneered social service. Today, it's more like, you know, it's, bureau it's bureaucratic for one. And secondly, um, there are those who work in social service who kind of monitor and say, oh, you're making too much you have to go somewhere else. So I, that, that's the feeling I've always gotten um, when I had to work through that system, as well as being a social service practitioner myself, um, the way the system set up. So would how, so again, how would 
this money be given out through health and human services or more of the treasury department? Yeah. Treasury department, internal revenue service, you know, they send you your, your refund. If you qualify for one, when you submit your taxes, uh, they're, they're going to be the ones who send us our $1,200 checks that this relief package is going to give us for one time in April. So they're set up to do that. And they got your numbers right there. So they can do that. Now, that's one of the bureaucracies that has been uh, short-staffed more and more. So they're like they're not doing the audits they used to. And a lot of wealthy people are getting away with a lot of uh, tax liabilities they're not paying and nobody's looking. Uh, so that would be the Internal Revenue Service. Now, the other human services, I mean, every state has its own way of administering, uh, you know, what's now temporary assistance to needy families right. and other uh, public benefit programs. And because they're always, all the states have to balance their budgets except one. I think it's Nebraska, but I'm not sure. Um, and so... And we have had, you know, 50 years of neoliberal austerity. So the idea there is that the market works better than the public sector. And maybe for the distribution of consumer goods, it, it works pretty good, but not for a lot of things. Um, so they put this into the system. So people who are qualified, like I can speak to New York. Here, if you're receiving temporary assistance to needy families, you have to be hunting for a job. And that's a full-time job because you've got to report, you know, 20, uh, you know, requests for a job or, you know, job applications a month. And for a lot of low-income people, they don't have a computer and access to the Internet. So they got to go down to the welfare department, get online or at the public library. Um, that costs them public transportation. And then if they miss the deadline, even by a day, they're kicked off for a month and it's mm -hmm. a crisis. Right. And you know, that's a poor way to, to help people. Um, so the, the human delivery of human services should be more based on what people need rather than the tight budget, you know, some governor is imposing on the counties if the counties are the ones administering in that state. Um, so I, I think, the other thing I'll say is negative income tax is not a substitute for other programs. That's one thing Milton Friedman wanted to do. He just wanted to say, get rid of all these public assistance programs. We'll just have right. this negative income tax. Right, right. Um, which means, you know, you may be above the poverty line, but if you do a budget in a lot of cities because the rent is so damn high, uh, you're not going to be able to pay the rent. And so uh, we need public housing. Uh, Section 8 needs to keep being funded. Uh, it needs to be, we need, I, I would do this at the federal level, say, uh, have a, uh, an anti-discrimination law on sources of income. Because you get Section 8, the theory was you could go anywhere and pay the landlord, but the landlords uh, outside, you know, the low rent districts, you know, the, the high poverty districts don't want those Section 8s. Uh, same for people, some are social security, some are uh, rent assistance through the public welfare, um, you know, uh, uh, military pensions. I mean, a lot of sources of income get discriminated against. Um, if you're just dependent on social security, you know, some landlords, they don't see any more income, they don't want you. So we gotta have a law against that. You know, if you can afford it, 
with the income you have, you should be able to get that apartment without discrimination. So what's now expand from the domestic now to the uh, international stage? Um, besides the coronavirus, um, what is your general outlook when it comes to foreign policy? Because um, it seems like more and more with under um, President Cheeto that it's more like isolation when it comes to international relations and everything. Um, with his, you know, America first, his um, Americanism, personal philosophy, when it comes to international relations also. Um, what is a Howie Hawkins general outlook when it comes to international relations? Well, first, let's get straight about Trump. America first, all that stuff is a slogan. He's the liar in chief. He's droning more people in the Middle East than Obama did, who drone more people than Bush did. Uh, he says he's leaving Syria and then he grabs the oil fields. He's uh, escalated our troop presence around Iran, including deploying a new tactical nuclear weapon in our warships during that recent crisis. The war games we've done uh, targeted at Russia are the biggest uh, we've ever done, bigger than any time during the Cold War. So let's just you know, drop this idea that Trump is somehow uh, disengaging from the world militarily. He's engaging it with sanctions as well as bombs, as yeah. well as troop deployments. So Trump is a liar. And then, you know, Biden is a hawk from way back. Yeah. You know, Iraq war, uh, you name it, he's been reliable uh, supporter of the military industrial complex. So my foreign policy is the basic theme would be the United States should be the world's humanitarian superpower instead of this global military empire. Let's help people and make friends instead of enemies by occupying them and changing regimes and going around the world like, you know, we owned it. People didn't have their own countries. And to do that, we need to cut the military budget deeply. I'm calling for a 75% cut in military spending to start. Uh, we need to bring our troops home. They're deployed in over 800 foreign military bases. We need a, you know, phase withdrawal you know, not doing stupid things like Trump did when he said he's getting out of uh, Rojava, the Kurdish region of northern, uh, uh, north and east uh, Syria, which was basically telling Erdogan, who wanted to invade, go right ahead. We don't care about the Kurds, even though they helped us, you know, kick ISIS out of Syria. Um, that's not the way we do it. You leave a vacuum with some bad actors like Erdogan and you're going to create more problems than you uh, started. So... It has to be phased, reasonable, but the point is uh, we're making the transition, so we're not going to be the world's police force. Uh, when we do have to use armed force to fight aggressors or terrorists, it should be multilateral. And uh, that brings up, you know, how should we relate to Russia? Um, there's been, you know, since the uh, WikiLeaks dump right before the Democratic Convention, and Clinton sent Robbie Mook out there to scream, Russia, Russia, Russia. And I was thinking, man, is that what they're going to try to pin on Trump? Whatever the Russians did, I mean, Trump had a rap sheet a mile long. Every other sentence, you know, had some racist put down. He was a serial sexual assaulter. He's a failed businessman. He obstructed justice the minute he took office. He was self-enriching against the emoluments clause the minute he took office. I mean, he was a target-rich environment. 
And even when they finally got to impeachment and left all these other crimes off the table, they went after Ukraine, half of what the Democrats said in those hearings made it a national security issue, as if what happens in Ukraine has a big impact on us. Russia has an economy one-tenth of ours. Their military forces are one-sixth of ours. They're not a threat to invade the United States, but they are a nuclear superpower. And we keep poking the bear. We've got out of nuclear arms agreements, like the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Force Treaty. The Russians did violate it. They did deploy some intermediate-range nuclear forces. So instead of using the treaty to say, hey, let's get back in compliance, we pulled out so we could put the same kind of missiles in Europe. And we're back to where we were in the early 80s. The last bilateral uh, nuclear arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia is the New START Treaty. It expires February 5th, right at the beginning of the next term of the next president. And Trump is not talking to Putin about that. Putin's ready to negotiate. Trump says, we don't, we don't want that arms treaty. So we're in the middle of a new nuclear arms race, and we're doing provocative actions toward Russia. Now, I don't have anything good to say about the Putin government. You know, they de deny climate change. Uh, and you, could, you know, they're, they're exploring for oil and gas in the Arctic. There's all kinds of problems with them, not to mention the way they treat their journalists and their political dissidents. But they're a nuclear power, and we got common problems, so we should be engaging them diplomatically about the climate issue, especially about this nuclear arms issue. There are regional proxy wars we're both involved in, in Ukraine and Syria. We have a common, and we need to resolve those. The U.S. is not diplomatically engaged in the negotiations, both in Syria and uh, Ukraine, that, you know, Russia and, uh, in the case of Syria, Iran and Turkey are engaged in. Uh, we're, we're charting our own course on that, and that's not the way to help those problems. So we should be engaging diplomatically. And I'm not saying it'll be easy, but uh, it's sure a lot better than, you know, provoking a war with Russia, which is what we seem to want to do. You look at the military doctrines uh, that have been adopted by Obama and now Trump, and they've pivoted from the Middle East to seeing China and Russia as great power rivalries instead of accepting a multipolar world and a multilateral world. So those are some of the themes and, and approaches I would take. So one of the things that I've always noticed over the years with many administrations up in my life is there's always been negating the global South. And one of the things I have not heard from anyone is what does a government like the United States do to mend any kind of relationship with Africa, with Latin America? Southeast Asia, uh, because like in, in Africa in particular, you know, you have like an African union of nations there who are totally against what the United States is about, and rightfully so, as an imperialist country as the United States is, you know, as well as Europe. Um, so what can like a Hawkins administration do to kind of mend relationships with the global south? Well, we work with them as uh, equal partners instead of dictating to them. So in Africa, you know, the African Union had a plan for negotiations in the Syrian, uh, the Libyan crisis. And we got permission and the Russians and the Chinese abstained, so basically gave us permission 
to haul Gaddafi from going over to Benghazi and maybe doing harm to those people. That was what was approved. Instead, we had a whole bombing campaign to overthrow Gaddafi's government uh, and, you know, left the place a total mess. And now it's, you know, warring militias. It's a failed state, if there ever was one. And uh, so the African Union was willing to set up uh, negotiations. They were talking to both sides. They're in the same continent. And they were totally brushed aside by the U.S. and NATO. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now we've expanded the Africa Command to the point where we're taking command of militaries in those countries. And they become basically subordinate to us. And there's a lot of resentment in Africa for that. So I think, uh, you know, we treat them as an equal partner on uh, military issues as well as development issues. And, you know, I would say for the whole world, we need a Green New Deal. We need a global Green New Deal. And I would devote a major portion of that 75% cut in military spending to helping these countries, uh, a lot of which are still developing the old, you know, petrochemical and uh, centralized power grid systems, mm -hmm. which are... Uh, eight, 19th century and help them leap right into the 21st century future with solar and wind and smart digital grids that can accommodate the distributed production of energy from wind and sun. So, and then in Latin America, we got to stop overthrowing governments, you know, trying to in Venezuela. Uh, we did uh, in Honduras, that was under Obama, 2009. Uh, looks like we did it in Bolivia where, you know, the, the story was there'd be elections this May. But now that very right-wing government has said, uh, because of the coronavirus, we're going to postpone those elections indefinitely. Um, I haven't heard any protests from the United States or any offer of help. Okay, if uh, we need to physically distance, social distance ourselves in Peru, I mean, uh, Bolivia as well, well, Let's uh, help them set up a mail ballot system or something like that, which, by the way, we need to do in this country. And there was, I think it was 400, 400 million uh, to help with elections in this coronavirus period. But uh, the election activists say that we need about $2 billion to really make sure the November election goes off in a way that people can vote without uh, risking getting sick. So, so I'm sorry. Yeah. So, you know, world's humanitarian superpower applies to the global south. And I would also say there's another issue that, uh, and this is mostly the global south, and that's the new nuclear arms race. Two years ago, well, almost three years ago now, the uh, 122 nations agreed to the text of a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. None of the nuclear powers participated. But the international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons got the Nobel Peace Prize for that. And people around the world know that, but not Americans don't. I find very few Americans even know that. Who got the Nobel Peace Prize? It was about nuclear weapons two years ago. The politicians, none of the presidential candidates talk about it, except Mike Gravel when he was in the race, he did talk about it and you know, good for him. But uh, you know, none of the major party candidates are talking about it. And that's an existential threat. And what I'm saying is we can work with those 122 nations to build world public opinion to force all the nuclear powers to the table to negotiate complete and total nuclear disarmament across the globe. That should be our objective. And, and what I say to do that is 
the United States should take some nuclear disarmament initiatives. First thing we should do is pledge no first use of nuclear weapons. Second thing we should do is unilaterally disarm to a minimum credible deterrent. And once we've done that, that'll reduce the tension somewhat and show the world we're serious and then go to the nuclear powers and get these 122 nations on our side to put pressure on those nuclear powers too. I think that's a path forward toward nuclear disarmament that uh, the global South is very much interested in because if we have a major nuclear exchange between major nuclear powers, you know, they're going they're gonna, to they're gonna starve to death from the nuclear winter that would result just like everybody else who didn't get blown up or radiated in the first, you know, exchange. So let's just take for a moment to say the general election is over with, Howie Hawkins wins the presidency, gets into the White House. Um, what does that look like? What does that dynamic look like? And I think that's one thing, you know, those of us who are in third parties, um, are organizers and activists, you know, we, we, we should be thinking about how to get the W, the win and everything. But I also feel that we don't have enough conversation as to what happens when the win happens, you know? Um, so if a, if a Howie Hawkins is in the White House, the only third party presidential candidate since, since, since Lincoln, uh, down to the White House, what does that dynamic look like now? You know, you have a Green Party president in the White House, you have Republicans and Democrats in Congress. Um, so walk me through what you see that dynamic looking like. Well, let me first say the real dynamic in my campaign is a party and movement building dynamic. And we want to get ballot lines and elect thousands of people to local office and state office and Congress in early 2020s. So when we have a caucus of Greens in the Congress, our presidential ticket, they won't be able to ignore us. And so, you know, the odds of me being the next president are low. Um, but you know, Bernie Sanders had a much better chance and he would have faced the same thing I did. First of all, uh, and my program is more extensive than his, but there's a mandate. You know, there'd be a mandate for Medicare for all, at least, you know, national health insurance for a full strength Green New Deal. Um, and the fact that I, and Bernie, I think is a good analogy, won against the odds would tell Congress, hey, the people want this because the whole establishment was against it, and we still won. And if you know what's good for you, you go along with the program because we can run candidates against you in the House in two years and in the Senate no more than six years. And I think that's the leverage. And then you mobilize the people to put pressure on Congress. I think that's the dynamic you want to set into place. But the reality is the odds of me being in that position are very low. But I know what position I'll be in, you know, the, the high odds, and that is I'll be a civilian uh, as part of the Green Party and the broader progressive social movements. And I think it's time for us to strategize mass, nonviolent, direct action to advance our demands. My model is Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign in 1968 which drew on some earlier things, the marches on Washington, 
the March on Washington movement that Abe Randolph led, which he got from the bonus marchers in, you know, in the Great Depression who wanted their World War I bonuses, goes back to uh, some marches on Washington for public works to put people to work in the 1890s, Coxey's Army. But what, what King wanted, intended to do before he was assassinated was get a large group, a multiracial coalition of the poor, saying, we ain't moving, and they're on the mall until we get action from Congress. And from that base, doing all kinds of actions to force Congress to act. And we have demonstrations, and we have uh, sometimes ritualized civil disobedience, and sometimes small groups doing more uh, militant civil disobedience. But what we need is mass action, like we had during the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, like we did, we had critical mass during the civil rights movement. Um, we had that, we had a mass movement against the war in Iraq. Unfortunately, the leadership of the peace movement decided after the war started, our best bet was to support reporting for duty John Kerry, who wanted to surge more than Bush got, said he could fight the war better than Bush. And they saw him as the lesser evil and I think confused the peace movement, disarmed it. I guess you can use that metaphor. And, uh. You know, it, and so what did they do? When Obama got elected, they were off the streets. Oh, we got a Democrat in there. And of course, Obama escalated. Uh, he made a big show of bringing some combat troops out of Iraq, even though he served in Afghanistan, but he escalated special ops and drone strikes, uh, which have alienated more and more people in the Middle East and created more terrorists than we've killed. And uh, where's the peace movement? I mean, that's the movement we got to rebuild. And it's got to be, you know, so what I'm saying is, if I'm not the president, I think, you know, what I'll be trying to do is work with other people to, you know, build mass movements that are making demands in a way that they cannot be ignored. And I'll also say that that cannot be separated from electoral politics, because we can have mass movements, but if we don't have an independent electoral option on the ballot that supports those movements' demands, the Democrats are going to take us for granted. They figure they got our votes in their hip pocket, because what are we going to do? Vote for Republicans like Trump? No, the progressives are not going to do that. So we got to have our own option if we're going to have political leverage for our social movements. I think that's a good way to end. Uh, Howie, I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, much appreciated taking this time out. I know you're very busy with the campaign and everything. Um, where can people find you? The best place to go is HowieHawkins.us. Put that in your search engine, www.HowieHawkins.us. And there you can find more about what I'm saying. And if you want to get involved, how you can volunteer and contribute. So go there. And, and from there, you can link to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that social media. And as we said also earlier, you know, if you're want to get involved with the campaign, you know, check Howie Hawkins out his website um, and also touch base with your state parties um, when it comes to the ballot access piece of it. Uh, Howie, again, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you're listening to Firebrand. Um, like I said, every Tuesday, the show is going to be uploaded. You can check us out on Facebook.com forward slash Firebrand. Also check us out on SoundCloud as well as Spotify. Uh, looking forward to talking with you and, you know, everyone stay safe out there and keep fighting the good fight.
Thank you.